Turn with me to the book of Judges. Not a place we often go for preaching or teaching these days, but the book of Judges, chapter 4, and beginning at verse 1. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died, so the Lord sold them into the hand of King Jabin of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harashath Hogoim. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron and had oppressed the Israelites cruelly tw 20 years. At that time, Deborah, a prophetess, wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Aphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go, take position at Mount Tabor, bringing 10,000 from the tribe of Naphtali and the tribe of Zebulun. I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the brook Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And he said, and she said rather, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah got up, and she went with Barak to Kadesh. Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 warriors went up at his heels. And Deborah went up with him. Let's pray together tonight. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. May our time in your word this evening remind us of the call to personal involvement in the victory you intend for your people, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. There's something in the soul of every child that hates the class bully. Unless, of course, he is the class bully. But since there can usually only be one bully at a time, most of you know that hate of which I speak. We dreamed about the day when that bigger kid or, or that older kid who harassed us would get dragged down to the principal's office while the rest of us broke out into a stirring rendition of I feel good. When I was 10 and my older brother was 12, we came to know a thing or two about bullying. Each afternoon, Dave and I would walk the one mile home between the, the school and our house. And it was usually a very pleasant walk, especially in the winter when new fallen snow would make all kinds of fantastic shapes on the bushes and the hummocks beside the blacktop. But as all journeys do, this one had what John Bunyan would have called a hill of difficulty. <laughs> it was a slight knoll that rose past the homes of our two worst tormentors. They were seventh graders, 
classmates of my brother at school, and, and they tormented him mercilessly at school and, and on the way home from school, and since I was sharing the walk, I came in for my share of the abuse, too. I remember hating those late, warm winter afternoons when the sun would melt the snow just enough to make ice balls. Because I knew only too well that, that Bobby and Steve would be waiting for us at the top of the knoll. They would stand there grinning as we walked closer. Armed with their arsenal of, of snowballs and catcalls, getting by them meant running a gauntlet of ice and abuse that struck terror into my 10-year-old heart. And every day, the closer we got to that awful spot on the way home from school, I, I would wish that there was some other way to get home, some alternate route that would let us miss that day's battle. And when Dave and I finally did discover another way home across the fields, believe me, we did not wait long to take it. I remember laughing to myself that we had outwitted the enemy. We had outsmarted those awful bullies by taking, well, it, it really was the long way home. In reality, I suppose they had never succeeded in controlling us so well as when our fear of the coming battle meant that we would do anything to avoid them. They were the masters of Langan Road. And for all of our shrewdness, it was Dave and me trudging along in knee-deep, unplowed snow on those stormy afternoons when no one would be there to pick us up and give us a ride. The fear of the battle meant that we had to take the long way home. My friends, I suspect that uh, some of you here know that fear as well. Someone, something in your life is looming large and intimidating and fearsome. And remembering it, thinking about it, saps all your strength and, and, and makes all of your courage evaporate. You'd gladly go out of your way to avoid that battle on the horizon. I take some comfort when I read God's word to discover that my brother and I weren't the only ones who have ever been afraid of bullies. In the opening verse that we read from the fourth chapter of Judges, I find that for 20 years the entire people of Israel struggled with their fear of two of the biggest bullies of the Canaanite world. And you know, Jabin and Sisera were armed with something a little more impressive than ice balls. In a land where metal weapons were exceedingly rare, they controlled 900 chariots of iron. Chariots that made the plain of Esdralon tremble as they rolled along in procession. And the frightened Hebrews up there in the hills peered down from the crags and, and thought that, that Jabin must be a mighty king, that, that Jabin and Sisera had to be obeyed because of those 900 chariots of iron. But up in the wild gorges where God's people had gone to hide for safety, there was uh, something new 
in the wind. There was talk of revival in the wind. There was talk of reformation in the wind. Hearts were beginning to change. Minds were beginning to be reshaped by the spirit of the living God. There was talk of sincere repentance before a God whom they had offended with their idolatry. And in late night tales beside smoky campfires, old men told stories of a time when Israel was free, a time when Israel was righteous, a time when Israel was true to the God of heaven. Have you ever noticed, my friends, that whenever God's people seek him, he sends a leader to fan the flames of revival? Under the shadow of Mount Ephraim, God raised up a leader to keep the revival going. We don't know a lot about her background, and we don't know much about the special gifts with which the Spirit of God had equipped her for the role she was to play. But beneath a palm tree that, that came to be known as Deborah's palm, the text tells us that she sat and judged the people. And every day, every day as she listened to their stories of pain and their tales of grief and, and the record of their oppression by the enemy, the conviction grew in her mind that she had to help her people overcome their fear of fear. Her people had to be led to overcome their incapacitating fear of those 900 chariots of iron. And so Deborah went about breaking that dark spell of discouragement and despair that hung over her people. She taught them how to believe in again in a God who could do mighty miracles. She taught them how to pray again. And you know, lives began to change. Men and women began to change. Men and women and teenagers and little kids began to search their hearts in the sight of a holy God and make a commitment in the battle against evil that they knew was coming on the near horizon. Interestingly, my friends, we, we don't read in the Word of God any discontent with Deborah's leadership. We don't hear any muttering in the corners that, that women were supposed to be at home, that women were supposed to be meek and submissive creatures. Not one voice was raised to question Deborah's role as a judge in Israel. You see, those ancient Hebrews had the good sense to realize that when God gave gifts of skill and nerve to human beings, gender didn't matter one bit. They accepted the leadership of a woman because they saw the fire of God in her eyes. And we, who call ourselves modern, sometimes, my friends, we excuse ourselves from allowing gifted people to the roles for which God has equipped them. And we say that the times aren't ready for it yet. You're right, it's only been 3,400 years. God chooses whom he wills to fill positions of leadership among his people. And I want to tell you, I would much rather follow one Deborah into battle than any number of weak and fearful men. Deborah found herself at the heart of a genuine religious revolution. She understood that the time had come for action. And so she sent a message to the strongest man she could find, a tribal chief with the interesting name of Barak. 
He lived about 100 miles to the north of her, and even though she made it abundantly clear that the message didn't come from her, it came from the Lord, even though she specified in advance the place of the battle and the certainty of success that God had promised, Barak said, no, I won't go unless you go with me. So terrible had the fear of Jabin and Sisera's chariots become among the Hebrews that even the strongest of all of their tribal chiefs, the man whose very name meant lightning, refused to go unless Deborah was at his side. Even though he could count on the support of 10,000 of the best soldiers of Naphtali and Zebulun, Barak wouldn't budge an inch until he had God's prophet by his side. Not a bad thought, that. He had the normal courage of the average captain, but he knew that the battle ahead required more than normal courage. He needed God's prophet by his side. And Deborah quickly agreed to go. There wasn't any hesitation on her part. She didn't try to hide behind ruffles and lace. She didn't try to shyly insist that, you know, war is only for the men. She knew that she was intimately bound up with a movement of destiny and that she couldn't shirk her duty then. Scripture says Deborah arose, went to Bar with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak summoned Zebulon and Naphtali to Kadesh and 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. And down on the plain of Esdralon, crafty Sisera must have smiled to himself. Let them come, he thought. Let them come with their bows and arrows. Let them come with their rusty swords and scythes. Let them come and throw their rocks and run. You see, when a man has 900 chariots of iron, he longs for something to do with them. And Sisera was already mentally counting the corpses of all of the Hebrew peasants his trained soldiers would cut down. But Sisera, Sisera had made all of his calculations as if there were no God in heaven. Sisera had made all of his calculations as though God wasn't watching out for his chosen people. Sisera foolishly thought, along with all of God's enemies, that he was only dealing with a weak and pathetically helpless pe group of people. You know, some tired senior citizens, some flaming young teenagers. He thought he could crush this uprising the way you crush a fly on the wall. But the record says, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak at the edge of the sword. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Ogarim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. And before the day was over, the man who had thought to crush God's people had his own temple crushed by a tent peg driven by the hand of a woman. I hope, my friends, I hope, I hope that every violent person who ever even thinks 
about raising his hands against the people of God will remember how Sisera died. Evil will so occupy the mind of the one it possesses that he can't even lie down to sleep in peace because he always fears a hand bloodier than his own. The scripture tells us that in the aftermath of this great victory over their oppressors, Israel gathered for a great celebration of, of praise and thanksgiving. And the woman who had inspired it all, she proved that she was a superlative poet as well. Deborah, we're told, raised her voice in a song that she wrote, a song that, that really has left a high watermark on the record of the world's literature. Wherever you go in the textbooks, you will discover that the song of Deborah is treated by both believers and skeptics alike as one of the great pieces of poetry of the ancient world. It's full of all the fire and the energy of the holy cause that inspired it. It reveals a depth of thought and emotion that many people didn't believe could have existed that long ago. The song of Deborah rises to a height of exaltation in proclaiming the alliance between God and his people. According to Deborah, even the, the stars in their courses fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon, the onrushing torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might, she says. March on my soul with might. But in the midst of all of this exaltation, in the middle of all the thanksgiving and the celebration, there is a note of great anger and great bitterness. In the 23rd verse of Judges 5, we find these lines that seem so strangely out of place. Curse Meroz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse bitterly its inhabitants because they came not to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. In the flush of triumph, while the victory party was in full swing, we might have expected Deborah to be charitable to those who somehow didn't manage to show up when the battle was on. We find ourselves inventing all sorts of excuses for why the people of Meroz might have failed to come to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Well, maybe the grain harvest needed every available laborer just then. You know, maybe the local economy would have been hurt if all the merchants picked up their father's swords and spears and, and went off to war. Maybe there were pressing political issues in, in Meroz just then that required every citizen to stay home and get involved. But Deborah doesn't know of any such excuses. And with righteous fire in her eyes, she denounces those who chose the safety of hearth and home while the legions of Naphtali and Zebulun were risking their necks out there on the plains. It's an accident of history that we know nothing more about the city of Meroz today than the memory of her curse. 
An entire city has passed into the abyss of history, and it's left only its name, Meroz, as a symbol for shame and dishonor. Meroz has come to stand for uselessness. Meroz has come to stand for neutrality when, when no good person can be neutral. Meroz has come to stand for passivity when no honest person can stand idly by. Meroz has become the label of the shirker in the way that the word quisling in World War II became a synonym for someone who would sell his native country, in that case Norway, to the enemy. But Meroz didn't do anything so, so actively evil as playing traitor or spy. No, Meroz simply did nothing. In the face of a monumental crisis confronting the people of God, Meroz continued acting as though nothing unusual was happening. And so she became marked in the pages of history as a cursed city. In a time of desperate conflict, an inactive friend is counted as an enemy. Did you hear what I said? In a time of desperate conflict, an inactive friend is counted as an enemy. Could God conquer those iron chariots of Jabin and Sisera without the help of Meroz? Certainly he could. He didn't need a human army at all. But could Meroz survive without committing herself wholeheartedly to the battle of God? Not at all. Not at all. And so we know nothing today of Meroz other than the memory of her curse. But I'm here this evening to tell you, my friends, that the curse of Meroz has not entirely left the people of God. As much as we may flinch, as much as we may stop our ears, as much as we may want to pretend we have not heard, those words, those divine words of criticism are directed today against the members of God's church who refuse to answer the call to the battle that's on the near horizon. The sin of Meroz, oh, it's simply the sin of trying to save our own neck at the expense of somebody else's neck. It's the attempt to save our own souls without a thought for the souls of others. The people of Meroz in the church today are those who, who want to come out of their safe hiding places all cool and unwounded after the victory has been won. And I hope I hope with all my heart that you're not one of them. Most of us here this evening are Americans. And I suspect it's harder for us than for almost any other people in the world to understand the necessity of personal involvement when there's a battle on. It has been 145 years since there was any pitched combat in the lower 48 states. 
We get used to the idea that, you know, somebody else, somebody else's son, somebody else's daughter is going to cross salt water and do our fighting for us. But I'm here this evening to point out that there is a battle going on on American soil tonight and, and on Canadian soil and Bermudian soil. It's on Alabama soil and it's on Florida soil and it's on Georgia soil and it's on Tennessee soil and it's not some Civil War reenactment. It would actually be more accurate to say this evening that there are 1,500 or, or 3,000 or, or 5,000 separate battles going on. In front of each of us this evening, there is some issue, there is some contest, there is some topic that the Lord Jesus has been placing in front of us. You know what that is? I don't in your life, but you've already been living with it for quite some time. You don't have to go scanning the horizon to figure out what it is. You don't have to go staring into a crystal ball or examining your horoscope. The Spirit of God has been talking to you over many months about what that issue is in your community, in your life, in your church, in this movement. And my friends, this isn't a battle that you can get someone else to fight for you. You can't wait for someone else to get drafted. You can't hire someone else to go in your place. This is in every sense a private war. It's a personal war. It's a struggle against wrong that the Spirit of God has laid on your heart and there is only one person who can do something about it. Don't think, my friends, don't think that this is a battle you can skip. Don't suppose that you're going to be able to climb out from under your rock after the battle is over and still claim a share in the victory. If you're going to dance at the victory party, you better have been there when the battle was on. Those who hide in fear during the battle, Scripture says they're counted the enemies of God's people. Scripture abounds actually with numerous examples of the sin of Meroz. From the lips of Jesus himself, we hear denunciation of that unfaithful servant who took his talent and did nothing. We hear Jesus cursing that showy fig tree that produced many leaves, but in the way of fruit, it produced nothing. We hear Jesus rebuking that lukewarm church of Laodicea, which thought it was rich and increased in goods, but actually, of the things that count, it possessed nothing. And his awful word to them is, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. Friends, there really is such a thing as the sin of omission. It's a sin that Jesus talks about. And if, God forbid, any of us should be lost in the end, I don't think it will primarily be because of all of the bad things we did, but because of the good things we failed to do. The sin of Meroz, it, it's not a sin of impetuousness. It's not just a mistaken opinion like... Um, choosing vanilla when every sane person knows you should choose chocolate. 
No, the sin of Meroz is the sin of a person or a family or a church or a campus or a conference that has gotten used to only low-risk investments. A person or a family or a church or a campus or a conference that has decided it wants a low-risk portfolio as it goes into the future. It's the sin of fear for those who have lost the fire of their first love out there thinking about the coming battle. You may be thinking that these are pretty strong words. This is pretty tough language. But when the Lord himself is leading his people into battle, the person who hides in fear. If I hide in fear, I am calling God a liar because he has said, I will give Sisera into your hand. For far too long, my friends, Seventh-day Adventists have allowed our fear of conflict to incapacitate us and cripple us. We forget the words of the Lord when he said, I have not come to bring peace but a sword. We ignore the plain language of the Lord when he said, he that is not with me is against me. The struggle in which God's church is always engaged is a struggle between the truth and a world that is determined to stamp it out. Well, you say, that's, that's right. I, I agree with you, Bill. That's the kind of thing that others really need to hear, that, that 40% who never come to church but are still on our books. That 50% who never return a faithful tithe or, or support the church with their offerings. They need to realize, Bill, I agree with you, they need to realize that unless they join in the struggle, they're not going to end up on the winning side. But my friends... I am speaking tonight to the 60% who come to church. I'm talking tonight to the 50% who return a faithful tithe. I'm talking to men and women who are ministry leaders, who are local church leaders, who are leaders of movements and ministries across the face of this denomination. Men and women who, who make plans and, and look for support and, and try to think strategically. And 31 years of ministry have taught me that these words from the song of Deborah apply to God's people today with the same force they were once directed. Remember that the city of Meroz undoubtedly had its leaders as well. There was probably some tribal chieftain there. There was probably some local elder. There was probably some Marazian conference president who could stand up in front of his people and say, now folks, folks, this, this really isn't our fight. We've got no quarrel with Sisera and Jabin. I mean, they've always treated us fairly well, haven't they? And besides, there's a whole lot of work that won't get done around here if we all go running off to war. That crunching sound you're hearing now is all the toes I'm stepping on. My wife will tell you that I have never been particularly light on my feet. 
And the great pity is, my friends, the great pity is that we have so long thought of conflict of any kind as something to be avoided that we're hardly able to recognize a moral battle when we see one now. The great rallying cry of my generation was nothing more profound than chill. Ten years ago, I followed bumper stickers all around Washington, D.C., that simply said, whatever. My sons are part of a generation that puts a premium on looking cool and slack and clean and funny. But those who don't want to get involved, those who want to chorus chill, those who are willing to follow whatever to wherever, those who want to stay cool and funny and clean in a world of pain and sin and dirt ought to hear the truth. And the truth is, Meroz will disappear. Meroz will vanish without a trace. Meroz will be destroyed by its own apathy as surely as if an enemy had attacked it. As fearful modern Christians, we, we sometimes justify those fears by saying to each other, well, the will of God will be worked out in the end, and God really doesn't need our tiny help, does he? After all, why, why stress yourself about things that are wrong in the world? I mean, if we just wait long enough, the Lord will come. And like fearful children, like Dave and me in grade school, we take the long way home. We avoid the very conflict with sin that would give us lasting courage and confidence. We're afraid of, of offending the forces of evil as though righteousness was just a matter of good breeding. My friends, go ahead. Offend the devil. Plant a flag on your lawn, put a poster on your door that says, as for me and my house, as for me and my family, as for me and my church, as for me and my conference, we will serve the Lord. We're not going to get through this thing without a fight, my friends. The evil in this world is very strong, and we will surely be wrestling against it until that very moment when Jesus breaks through the eastern sky. The story is told of a man out walking one day who came across two boys fighting. As he watched, he saw one of them pounding the other whom he had already tackled on the ground. And so he stopped the apparent attacker and, and said, you know, you really shouldn't hit a man who's already down. But wiping the sweat and the blood from his forehead, the boy stood up and said, Ah, ah, but you don't know what trouble I had to get him down. My friends, don't let some misguided notion of sympathy or tolerance keep you from acting in the name of goodness when God gives you the chance. Goodness is a fragile thing in this world. It's all too easily crushed out by that iron chariot of evil. 
The real measure of your commitment to anything is your willingness to defend it against the attacks made on it. That's true of your home, that's true of your family, that's true of your local church, that's true of this worldwide movement of God. By defending something, we come to know how much we value it. Sometimes I worry. I worry that as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, we haven't sufficiently involved ourselves in the struggle for goodness in this world. Perhaps because we've had one eye fixed on the soon coming of the Lord, we haven't noticed. We haven't noticed the ground that evil is gaining all around us. But friends, our belief in the soon coming of Jesus, my belief in the soon coming of Jesus, will never be a justification for ignoring the battle against evil that goes on in your living room, in your community, in your church, throughout the worldwide range of this movement. Tell me, my friends. Tell me. When the big developers' best laid plans will displace 20 Hispanic families who literally have no other place to live, is there a moral issue involved? When ravaging problems with alcohol and drugs are destroying the lives of teenagers and adults, in your community, on your streets, is there a moral issue involved? When hundreds of Adventist young adults are being led down the garden path of theistic evolution, some to lose their faith in Jesus, is there a moral issue involved? When growing percentages of the material resources that God has blessed his people with in North America are spent on getting deeper carpets for our sanctuaries instead of deeper compassion for the lost, is there a moral issue involved? When the apparatus of so many of our structures is better tuned to turning out receipts and giving reimbursements than to focusing on revival and reformation. Is there a moral issue involved? I'm going to do something today that most Adventist ministers won't do. I'm going to take exception to this scripture here in my hand. I'm going to take exception to what the Word of God says. I'm going to tell you that Jabin and Sisera are not dead. They are not dead. I'm going to remind you that Sisera, he raises his head with every new television comedy that gets us to laugh at things that the Holy Word of God calls honorable, things like marriage and religion and honor and loyalty. Sisera loves that, by the way. Sisera comes to life with, with every anthem that flaunts godlessness and immorality and pokes fun at people who hold to the values of the Word of God. Sisera comes to life again every time, anywhere, a government restricts the right of its citizens to worship the God of their conscience, whether those are Iraqi Baptists or Pakistani Adventists 
or Bible-believing Sabbath keepers who risk their jobs on Friday afternoon when they go home to keep the commandment of the Lord. Sisera thrives on the front pages of the tabloids that, that scream sex and scandal in three-inch type. Sisera comes back from the dead wherever God's little ones go hungry because we just can't see it. We just can't see it. Read the 25th chapter of Matthew, my friends. See what it is that Jesus says he really cares about. In the end of it all, Jesus wants the answer to some fairly simple questions. Did you feed my hungry people? Did you give a cup of cold water in my name? Did you lift up your hand to defend the truth? Did you lift up your hands to defend the weak or those who were weak in faith? Did you stand up when you were called for? Can you recognize a moral battle when you see one? call to you tonight is very simple. Be brave. Be strong in your corner of the battlefield. Be distinctly on God's side in this running warfare against the host of Sisera. Make a choice today that the God of Deborah is going to be your God. Make a choice today that the God of the courageous men and women who raised up this movement, will be the Lord of your life. Commit yourself today to being a man or a woman in whom the Spirit of God still burns with that holy fire. Ellen White said it with great clarity. She said it with courage. She said it with conviction. There is indeed a great controversy between Christ and Satan that rages in this world. But my friends, it must yet become a great controversy between you and Satan. A great anger against evil in your heart. A great desire to see God's goodness triumph in the end. Are you sometimes going to be afraid? Absolutely. Are you sometimes going to wonder if it's all worth it? Undoubtedly. But when next... When next you shiver in the fear of the battle, when next the ground around you trembles as those 900 chariots of iron come rolling by, remember the words of Psalm 46, come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, he shatters the spear. Now get this line. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts. Ah, oh, he's still with us. The God of Jacob is still. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.